Welcome to The Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. Is trust the ultimate currency of stakeholder capitalism? If so, how can corporate leaders create a culture of trust inside and outside of their organizations? Hello, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Uner, Strategic Communications Director at LRN, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Emily Miner, Director of Advisory Services. We're going to be talking about the role of values in building organizational trust and frameworks to help you get there. Emily, thanks for joining me today on the Principal Podcast, by the way, our final episode of the season, season seven. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jen. I'm happy to be here and honored to be rounding out an incredible season on the Principal Podcast. It has been a great season. I think we're going to have an opportunity to touch on some of the folks that we've had on the podcast. To get us started, though, recently at Aspen Ideas Fest, Fortune Senior Editor Ellen McGirt asked a great question of her panel. She said, is trust the ultimate currency of stakeholder capitalism? It's how we started our conversation today. And I, of course, will say yes. Um, But recently, you spoke with David Bursoff, head of global thought leadership research at Edelman, and he worked on the Edelman Trust Barometer. And you had a chance to speak with him earlier this season. And I'd love for you to kind of recap for us some of the insights that stood out to you. Yeah, so I think based on the 2022 Edelman Trust Barometer, which is a fantastic annual look at levels of trust in key societal institutions, business, government, media, I think that the the 2022 Trust Barometer report would say that the answer to your question and to Ellen's question is is yes, trust is the, the ultimate currency of stakeholder capitalism. And in fact, what Edelman found in their research is that business is the only institution in our society that is that is trusted. And that's actually a first, you know, in the 20 plus years that they have been running this type of study. And actually for the for the second year in a row, is business the most trusted institution? So that was one of the takeaways from the Edelman Trust Barometer and that David kind of helped unpack when we spoke earlier this this podcast season. And so given that, if business is the the only trusted institution for the second year running, it really kind of underlines the question, what does this mean for leaders? How can they ensure that business remains trusted? People are, are looking more and more to business to help solve or address the, the problems of the world because we don't trust government, because we don't trust media, because we don't trust NGOs. And so, you know, with, with kind of that mantle of being the only trusted institution, a lot more is falling on business and, and specifically business leaders uh, and the expectations for them are a lot higher so I think that that really, that was a, a current through the the Aspen Ideas Institute that you mentioned through the conversation that took place there. 
it really does put a lot of pressure on CEOs and leaders then. You know, one of the stats that I thought was so interesting was how I, I think it was like 60% of employees are, you know, they're they're basing their employment decisions now on the on the values of the companies that they're looking at and the positions that companies take around social issues. And of course, they expect the company to have a position on a social issue, which I think is kind of, it's kind of a rather new thing, would you say? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if it's if it's new, you know, in the past few years, because I do feel like this has been a trend that I've observed in the research, maybe up to the past decade or a little bit less, but it certainly every year seems to get to, you know, it, it grows. So it's a, it's, it's a, uh, you know, I think first it was a, a healthy minority of the global workforce or of the workforce in the United States. And, and now it's, uh, you know, tipping to, to be a majority of the workforce. And you see some of this in, in demographic changes as, you know, millennials kind of grow in the size of, of our workforce and now Gen Zers as they're entering the workforce and the expectations that those two generations uh, have for their employers. But it's certainly not a concept that, you know, millennials invented, but it does seem to be growing. And, you know, I, I something that's interesting to me now where, you know, despite we're potentially heading toward a recession in the United States, and despite that, it's still very much, you know, an employee market out there. Um, we're, you know, we're still in the midst of of a great resignation, um, which is now really being more called a, a great reshuffling because it's not that people are dropping out of the workforce so much as they're leaving their jobs to find better jobs. And what some research has shown is that it's it's not so much that I can find another job that pays me better, but it's it's that people are no longer satisfied with with the status quo and they're looking for opportunities where they can feel more values alignment, where there's more culture of, of inclusion and equity in the workplace, where they feel that their company is you know, doing something that's contributing positively to the world. Those are strong drivers of why people are kind of jumping ship and looking elsewhere. So it'll be interesting to see how that shapes the narrative and the the importance of of values and multi-stakeholder capitalism more generally, you know, as we continue to to hopefully be, you know, coming out of the COVID pandemic and this great reshuffling in spite of some of the more negative trend lines with respect to to our economy. Yeah, and I was I was just going to bring that up, you know, you when you have a a business environment that's that's marred by an economic downturn that that puts a lot of pressure there's then the business financial pressure on decision making and and performance for the company and then you you know you layer on top of that you know some of the uh, social and and political uh, challenges that are happening and this you know this need to have a position and like you know can you have a position on everything which are the things that you need to to uh, to prioritize and so I think you know, often corporate leaders in ethics and compliance, you know, our field, uh, chief ethics and, and compliance officers, for example, the, the people listening here, you know, they find themselves in a role of counselor to the C-suite um, as, as the company and, the, and its leaders are facing these kinds of tough decisions. 
One of the things that really struck me at the Aspen um, Ideas Institute conversation was Allstate's CEO, Tom Wilson, was one of the panelists, and he spoke about a societal engagement framework. And I know you had a chance to, to listen to his uh, presentation. Can you, can you tell me about their approach to decision-making and, and how they engage on hot-button issues? Yeah, absolutely. I am so inspired by this framework. And, you know, beyond that, it just, there's so much common sense in it. And Tom Wilson talked about this societal engagement framework as something that Allstate developed a little over a year ago in response to, he didn't use this word, but uh, sort of a deluge of social issues that, 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 are coming, were coming their way, um, and and that the company was being asked to, you know, take a stand on or, or take a position on, you know, sign sign a letter that's going to be on the front page of the New York Times or what have you, and it got to this point where, you know, they said we we've we we've got to pause and really think about how we're making these decisions, and so they developed what they call a societal engagement framework that they run all of these issues or questions through. And the way that it starts is, you know, first as an, at an outset, you know, how, how does this issue kind of stack up against our values and the way that we do business? So there, there, there needs to be a level of values alignment before they'll even entertain going further. But assuming that the issue does, they have four uh, filters, as as Tom called it, or you could also think of it as just four questions to ask. Um, and the first is, does this issue or our, does our taking action on this issue help us better serve our customers? Um, the second is, do you know we do we all state have any institutional knowledge about this issue? Third is, can we affect change on this issue? You know, what is our agency here? And then the fourth is, what impact does this issue have on our employees and our reputation? And so if, if you know, issue A passes through all four of those filters, then Allstate will come out and they'll take a public stand and, you know, more than just take a public stand as in, you know, the CEO pens a letter that gets published somewhere, they'll actually come out and and, and lead on the issue, um, engage on it. And so an example of an issue that kind of passes that this values track in the four the four filters is is climate change. Uh, Allstate, obviously an insurance company, and we know from science that the rate of forest fires in the West of the United States, for example, um, and the intensity of, of forest fires is the climate change plays a role in that. And forest fires are burning down all state customers' homes. So, you know, does does taking a stand and 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 you know working to address climate change help them better serve their customers? Well, absolutely. That's that's an easy one. Do they have any institutional knowledge about the issue of, of climate change? Yeah, there's a lot of math and science that goes into determining what policy plans and rates are and, 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 uh, you know, the risk of different issues to, you know, someone's particular, you know, home. And so they have a lot of institutional knowledge about that. Can they affect change on the issue as a large insurer of, of, of homes, um, as well as, of course, 
other things, their voice carries some carries some weight. And so they've worked with the government in in the state of California to, you know, help shape and advance legislation and and regulation, um, as well as, you know, perhaps, you know, other jurisdictions, you know, at the state level or, or, or nationally as well. And then finally, you know, what impact does this have on their employees and their reputations? Well, they know that climate change is an issue that their employees care about. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it passes that, that filter. Um, and one distinction that, that Tom made that I thought was really helpful was that if an issue doesn't pass through the filters, it doesn't mean that they're not going to do anything with it. You know, one of the examples that, that he gave was the Supreme Court, you know, recent ruling that overturns Roe versus Wade. All state healthcare plan has always covered abortion care. And, um, you know, given the the impact that this Supreme Court uh, decision might have on some of their employees that are, you know, located in states where abortion care is no longer an option, you know, all state has said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll reimburse uh, the travel, uh, et cetera, for our employees um, in order to access that care. So they're, responding to that issue, but they're not coming out and taking a public stand on it. They're not, um, you know, they're not, they're not taking a lead on, you know, reversing the reversal, um, shall we say, because does it help them better serve their customers? Well, they're not a healthcare insurer. Um, do they have any institutional knowledge about abortion care and the the impacts of, of abortion or, or access or lack thereof? you know, no, et cetera. So, you know, there, it doesn't pass the filters, but that doesn't mean that they're not doing anything about that particular issue. So it really, it's having this societal engagement framework is a way for them to bring some discipline and structure and consistency into how they engage on you know, the increasing number of, of social challenges, political challenges, climatic challenges that we as a global society and as businesses are, are faced with. And it also, you know, tells everybody else, all of their stakeholders, their employees, their, you know, investors, their customers, it, it tells everybody, you know, this is, this is how we do things. This is our process. And we go, we go through this process. And so at the end of the day, depending on how you feel about the outcome, at least you know what that process was. Um, and and I, I just think it's such a, a brilliant example of bringing that, that level of clarity into how they're operating in this you know, multidimensional world and connecting it back to the Edelman Trust Barometer that we were talking about into the role of them as, as business leaders in fostering trust. You know, I think this sort of clarity of where you stand and and on which issues is is kind of an interesting one because, you know, you can't you can't necessarily stand for everything, right? You need to decide where is it your where is it your business really? And I, I think it's interesting how Allstate has chosen to to filter a topic and and arrive at a conclusion on it. And this whole thing about how do you filter and how do you decide. I just find so fascinating. You know, we had uh, Scott Sullivan. He's the current chief integrity and compliance officer for Newmont Mining. We had him on the podcast with Joe Henry 
former U.S. compliance officer for Brascom, and they were talking to Susan Divers on our team. They were on a recent podcast, and they were they were talking about some of the challenges they've both faced in in decision making. And um, one of the things that stood out for me was how they both used values to to guide their decision making and and to guide their counseling of of uh, their colleagues in the C suite because they were both leaning into values. And those values might be, those corporate values might be stated differently or might be prioritized differently between the two organizations. They would arrive at, at different outcomes, right? So like one of them would say, well, our policy around vaccines and masking is that you've got to do it and no one's allowed back to the office without it. And then, you know, another organization might might prioritize something else that says, well, you know, it's, it's, it's up to you. You get to make that decision. You can work from home forever if you need to. So I think it's really interesting that values plays a really important part and has like a real impact on how corporate policy and, and ultimately behavior, how that comes to be. So I, I don't know if you could talk to me a little bit about that. Cause I mean, obviously you spend a lot of time <laughs> consulting on values with companies. Tell me about how that shapes company policy and behavior. Yeah. You know, an interesting byproduct of the COVID pandemic I think has been that I perceive that the role of values has grown in prominence in terms of the discourse about the role of values in companies um, has increased. And I think it's because the decisions around COVID are so hard. (laughs) How do we, do, do, do people come in? Do they not come in? you know, we're risking lives in making this decision. How do we keep, you know, but, but we can't employ people if we don't have the money to pay the salaries. And so we have to keep on, you know, producing whatever it is that we produce in some level, but how do we do that? And I mean, these are incredibly complex decisions. And so when you're left, you know, when you're in a situation where you have to make these really challenging decisions and there isn't necessarily a playbook for it. um, I mean, the last, global health pandemic was, you know, over a hundred years ago, I think a lot of companies have come out and said, like, we didn't have a plan in place because this wasn't something that was anticipated. So when you don't have a playbook or, you know, to, to use terminology that's, that's common in, in our industry, ethics and compliance, you know, rules or regulations about something, values help to fill that void and they guide us on what we should or shouldn't do, as opposed to, you know, a playbook or a rule, which, which kind of says what, what you can and can't do. And of course, we need, we need rules, we need regulations, we need to know what we can and can't do and, 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 you know, where the lines are. But there are always going to be these unforeseen situations, the variant on the scenario that we, you know, didn't anticipate when we wrote, wrote the rule. And that's where values come in. You know, I think a lot of leaders, a lot of business leaders turned to their company's values as well as I'm sure their own personal values to help them navigate the incredibly complex decisions companies had to make surrounding COVID. And, you know, I've read a number of accounts from business leaders that have talked about how helpful that was and, you know, they're talking about values more internally and externally. And so I I hope that that's, I hope that that's a lens that 
business leaders will continue to use as strongly coming out of COVID. And that's at the company level, but it, it trickles down to the individual employee level too, because most companies offer some type of you know, training or onboarding, or you have a code of conduct, or you have policies. I mean, we have we have all of these resources that should tell us again that the, the, the cans and cans as well as the shoulds and shouldn'ts. But I think it's something like humans can only keep like three or five things in their mind at once. Like we can only we can only remember so much. And so having the presence of really strong values where the values actually mean something, they're not just a nice sort of recruitment tool on your website, but they really, they really mean something that's going to be infinitely more helpful guiding behavior on a daily basis across, you know, a global workforce and all the variation that, that, that comes with that. I've really been encouraged by how values have kind of become a more dominant part of of the conversation in the business community. And you're right, depending on what your values are, you might have completely different outcomes. But again, it comes back to that that transparency of the process and the fact that there is a process, like the structure of the process, that, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's, you know, most of us can 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 kind of get on board and accept accept what it is because we understand how we got there. That's what I think is so key. It's just that 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 tr- that transparency on how we got there. Um, it's not so much about the the end as as the journey, so to speak. Yeah, that makes total sense. I know in our code work, you know, in the in the consulting work that that you do with our with our clients. Speaking of employee level <laughs> work, we often include frameworks for decision making, right? That are, that work at the employee level. What are some examples of these? tools that can help not just leadership, like we were just talking about a sort of societal bigger picture one, but on the, on the individual level, how does that, how does that play out? Yeah. And I actually, you know, after watching Tom Wilson talk about Allstate's societal engagement framework, I actually went, went online and just, you know, Googled Allstate's code. Cause I was curious, like, how do they do they have something similar, you know, that they, a similar framework that they share that they've developed for their employees? And, you know, in fact, yes, <laughs> um, they're in their code. They have a, a whole section on ethical decision-making that lists, you know, nine questions that that employees should ask themselves when they're faced with a decision where, or, or a situation where the decision or the, or, you know, the course of action is unclear. And so, you know, is it legal? Okay. Yeah. That's sort of, that's sort of an obvious one, but does it conflict with our values? Um, what would, what are the consequences of this? How would your family and friends perceive this, you know, decision or, or course of action that you take? And so these are some of the questions that Allstate included in their code that I think, we, we, you know, the, the majority of us could probably take any number of tough, sticky, gray area situations and kind of go through it and, and you know, is it legal? Okay, well, I, maybe I'm, I don't know the law, but how would I feel if my mom knew? How would I feel if, if this was, you know, 
on the homepage of, of, of CNN, we all kind of know how we would feel about that. And it, that's such a helpful, it connects to our humanity, our, 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 like the human heart level. It's just really helpful framing for that all states providing to, to their employees. And we help a lot of companies write their codes of conduct and ethical decision-making models or, or, like a code in and of itself is a is a guide for behavior and breaking out you know different different risk topics into you know what are the behavioral expectations etc but having a having a decision making framework or a list of questions or whatever it is that sort of you know it's 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 issue agnostic it's situation agnostic is just something that anybody can can pick up and use that continuity of all state at their company level, as well as how they translate that down to employees. It's just one something that I wanted to note. But it's something that we include in most of our codes that we create for, for our clients. And, you know, some of my favorite examples, one of them is, is Deere, John Deere. Their code is beautiful. And it's just, it's, it's, it's who they are. It's their culture written down, which is what we always strive for. And they include a decision-making framework as well. And, you know, it includes, there's a, there's kind of a, a series of questions and, and it's an interactive. So you, you know, you ask yourself this question and then you click, you know, yes or, or no, and, and it reveals guidance for what your next step is. But it also, it starts out with, is it consistent with our values? So centering the values first, you know, and then going into consistency with rules. They also ask, you know, would this build trust with employees, customers, shareholders, or communities, or would it harm trust? So that that is kind of how we started at the outset of this conversation around the uh, the importance of trust in the business context. You know, similarly, how would I feel if my actions became public, etc. So you know, they have their own framework that speaks to to their culture and to their values. Another example is is Corteva, which is an agri-science company, and they also have a, a framework. And, you know, theirs is a little bit different. So it asks a series of questions. And then depending on how you answer those questions, they, they give guidance on who you can consult for advice. And it's going to be different depending on the situation. And so that's also nice that they you're not you're not on your own, right? Like there are there are others in this in our organization that are here to help and can help and if it's this situation, contact this group. And if it's this other situation, contact this other group. So I also thought that uh, that's, that's you know, something that they did a little bit differently. So, you know, they're all different here. You talked about the conversation between in the earlier podcast, but the goal is the same, which is to provide guidance for behavior that is reflective and supportive of who we are as an organization, what we stand for, and what we value. It's really, really important. You know, one of the things that we know from our benchmark of ethical culture, which is a, a report that you are very involved in, and uh, it certainly uh, steers a lot of my thinking these days. We, we know from the benchmark of ethical culture that the companies with the strongest ethical cultures are going to outperform their peers by 40%, up to 40%. In key business metrics, the standard things that you would want to have as a business like employee loyalty, innovation, 
adaptability, customer satisfaction, and, and growth. And so I think that taking code of conduct seriously, taking value seriously, and, and taking culture building seriously is probably one of the most important things that a company could be doing right now, especially when you look at the Edelman Trust Barometer and like the role companies have to take right now in society. Trust becomes super foundational to that. And, and I know you've got some insights that you can share around trust building and how foundational that is for ethical culture. Yeah. When we conducted our research into ethical culture globally uh, in a business context, we looked at, uh, I want to say, 10 different dimensions of, of culture and how people and, and organizations behave and operate. And we did uh, some fancy statistical modeling to look at the, you know, are there some aspects of culture that are more important than others? How do they relate to each other? What drives what? And all of that. And, you know, what we found was that there were some dimensions that rose to the top in terms of influencing other elements of culture, as well as those business outcomes that you talked about. And trust was one of them. We found that trust had an outsized impact on whether or not people behaved ethically in an organization and and particularly when they were under pressure. I think that that's such an important idea because if you look at any number of of corporate scandals so often, I mean not, not in every case certainly but but in in many cases the pressure to perform that was sort of set out or, or, or pushed by the organization, by leaders in an organization, is part of, of why people did what they did. So this idea that trust is one of the strongest drivers of whether people behave ethically, um, especially when under pressure, I think is, is a big one that certainly makes, makes me sit up a little taller and take notice because it's, it's, it's something that any chief ethics and compliance officer would say that they're looking for and is a goal of their, of their program. Another area where, where trust really stood out as a driver of, of employee loyalty, we were talking earlier about the, the great reshuffling, but I think that, that that also makes 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 it stand out even more for me just in sort of our current context. Um, people are more likely to stay in your company. You're more likely to, to retain great talent if they trust you as leaders, as an organization, you know, their peers, and if they feel trusted themselves. And I think one of the things that was uh, evident, too, in the research is is the value of transparency and building trust. To kind of wrap up a lot of the threads that we've talked about and as it relates to transparency, one of the findings that was so compelling to me from the Edelman Trust Barometer was that the majority of people are expecting CEOs, specifically CEOs, to take a public stand on you know any number of social issues of our times but at the same time at least in the united states these issues have become so politicized and polarizing and so it it that's a tough uh, a tough bar to set for ceos how do they thread that needle and it's why i think that all states societal engagement framework is just so brilliant because it helps them figure out how are we going to 
address these issues, you know, responding to to that majority of the population, as Edelman found, you know, they're looking, they're looking for 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 Allstate CEO and for, you know, any number of other companies CEOs to take a stand. So it's a way to respond to that call without politicizing or polarizing or without politicizing the issue, because that's not what it's about. It's not about, is this a liberal cause or a conservative cause? Is it a democratic cause or is it a Republican cause? It's it's four questions. Does this help our customers? Do we know something about it? Do we have agency over it? And, and what impact does it have on our employees? And so it really kind of takes all of that noise out of the decision-making. So I just think it's such a great example of how leaders in general can, you know, take up that mantle of society's expectations of business to help solve and address our social issues without having that response fall into any political trap that's, you know, going to alienate you or with your employees or with customers. So it's just, you know, it's such a great example and one that I I hope other business leaders take inspiration from. Well, I think it just really speaks to how important it is to set up those frameworks in advance so that you're not caught, you know, in panic mode or, you know, in defensive mode when when it's not it's not even necessary to be that way, right? If you've if you've set up those mechanisms in advance, you're going to you're going to probably come out ahead because you will have already created a framework that's going to prioritize, you know, the human response. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because like, what's the next COVID, you know, like what's the next unexpected thing? And so to already have that framework in place is going to be so helpful. That's why we say rules are good. Values are better. Exactly. Goes goes back to that. Emily, thank you so much for joining me on the Principal Podcast today. It's our final episode of season seven as we take a summer break and we'll resume with season eight in September. In the interim, we'll share encores of our favorite episodes from this season. To close out, my name is Jen Uner, and I want to thank you all for listening to the Principal Podcast by LRN. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principal Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.